Welcome to DevQuest, a podcast from the folks behind Lando about the wonderful and perilous journey of the modern web developer. This is Dustin LeBlanc. Have you ever hit that point in your career where you aren't sure what to do next? Have you ever been afraid to take a risk because you don't think anything good can happen? If so, I think this episode will help boost your spirits. On today's episode, I talk with Chris Teitzel, founder and CEO of Cellador Media and Locker.io. Chris and I had a great conversation. Here are a few key points to listen for. How a six-year-old Chris embarrassed his father's friends, starting before you're ready, taking chances when the chips are down, the upsides and downsides of taking on investors, the massive benefits of working in open source software, as well as the difficulties, and building trust in others to grow your business. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's go talk to Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Chris Teitzel, the founder and CEO of Cellador Media and Locker.io. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing good. How are you? I am doing fabulous. Um, so Chris is our first guest on the podcast. So uh, things might be a little you know, rough and tumble you know to start things off. yeah I, I i'm not sure you know i, I gotta try and make sure not to talk over you and all that good stuff so um but thanks for for joining us chris we really appreciate yeah. you you know kind of taking the bat bat sign call as the the first person to jump on with me no worries so I wanted to get started get, uh, asking you about, uh, you know, something we were actually talking before we we started recording about sort of like getting into the web development industry and kind of talking about, you know, where the podcast is going to be going. So could you give us a little bit of a taste of your your journey into the, you know, the career that we're, we're all part of? It's it's good timing to, to have this conversation as well, because my dad um, just yesterday posted on his Facebook uh, this picture of an IBM clock that he was given as a gift uh, that, that wasn't working or, or failed to work. And he's gotten it working again now that he's in retirement and hung it back up. But he wrote this long story about his arc into technology, right? And so um, if you want to go back in titles and technology, it goes all the way back to um, the early 50s with my grandpa starting at IBM uh, after getting out of the Coast Guard. And so he was working on radio towers and the like, and um, actually settled into being a um, kind of a district manager um, doing repair on Ramax. So if you remember Ramax, they're like the full server cage that was one meg of memory, right? Um, and so he was uh, he was running Ramax and, and doing repairs on those. And so my dad grew up with a highly technical dad. Um, and, uh, and said, Nope, I don't want to do this. I'm going to be a science teacher. So went to school, got his credentials, uh, became a science teacher was, uh, was a science teacher for a few years. And then IBM offered him a job and, uh, he said, yes. <laughs> and so, uh, he started at <laughs> IBM, right? uh, I want to say, <laughs> I know. Right. And so, um, and so he started in, in 82, 83, I want to say. And so then me growing up, I had a technical grandfather, a technical dad. Uh, both of them worked at IBM. Uh, I grew up building my own computers before I went to school. Um, I remember going to work with my dad in the cubicles, cubicle farms that IBM was in the 80s. And um, while he was working during the weekends or, or at nights, I would go to the parts bin and go steal parts out of the parts closet to build my own computers. And so 
you know, I was super happy Great. when I found a, a three and a half inch drive to to steal out of one of the <laughs> one of the shelves and build my my computer with and stuff. So I was it's like a very original Steve hacker. Jobby's story. I know, right? <laughs> so I just started hacking together computers. Um, learned to famously, like I always say, I learned to code before I learned to read. Like um, I actually, my dad said one of the more humiliating stories was uh, one of his friends at work was having a hard time getting something to work on his computer and little six-year-old Chris walks over, ticket, 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 here you go. And he's like, here's like a 30-year-old man in the peak of his, you know, technology career and a six-year-old boy walks up and, and does what he's been struggling to do. Um, and oh I, boy. You know, that, that's a metaphor for web development if I've ever heard one. But like, um, so then me growing up, I had the same thing my dad did. And I was like, I'm not going to do IBM. I'm not going to do technology. Um, and so I got the bug early on that I wanted to be a doctor. And so, uh, went to, went to college, I uh, got a pre-med degree in, uh, molecular biology or biology with a molecular emphasis. And, um, so always the, the science and, and math always kind of clicked for me. Uh, got waitlisted for med school. And while I was waitlisted for med school, I, I worked at a pharmaceutical company, pharmaceutical startup, um, doing, I was their molecular biologist, which as a, you know, 24, 25 year old, um, kid, I can say that now, but like as a 24 to 25 year old kid, they basically gave me the keys to a lab and said, here's a pharmaceutical drug that we have no idea how it works. Go do stuff and figure out what it does. Right. Wow. <laughs> it was just like, okay, cool. So I was like growing E. Coli and doing all sorts of crazy stuff with it. Um, and then 2009 at the, if you look at like the job peak loss curve, right mm -hmm. at the peak, yeah is like February, 2009. Right. Um, and so I was let go from my job because they, they were entering clinical trials. Um, and I think they finally realized they had a 25 year old running their, <laughs> their biology <laughs> department as they were going into clinical trials. Um, they said, ah, we need to up, up our game a little bit here. So, um, so I was let go and I was four months before my wedding. And so I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do? You know, wow. um, I was, I was fighting to wash lab glass against like master students. Like it was just brutal. Um, the job market was. And so, uh, with all my spare time, I said, I'm going to start working out for the wedding and, um, just, uh, went back to a book that I had in college for, to work out. And, uh, it was a, a Hollywood fitness trainer. And so in like a moment of desperation, I, wrote this sob story page long email of um, how I'm out of the job. I'm about to get married. I don't know what I'm doing and uh, sent it to him and said, you need an app and I can build it for you. Right. And so uh, 30 minutes later, I get a phone call and it's him and he's like, cool, let's do it. And I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah, cool. Sounds good. And I hang up and I was like, I, have what did I get myself into? No idea what I just signed up for, right? Um, I didn't know how to build an app. I didn't know any of that. I completely, you know, BS the whole thing. I don't know if we can swear on this podcast or not, but um, we haven't decided so, yet. So we'll, we'll bleep it if we need to. We'll we'll bleep it, or we'll you'll put the e tag on Chris's uh, episode. My mom would be proud. Um, there you go. But uh, but yeah, so I completely uh, BS my way into it, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there. And we're having conversations back and forth. I think he's just going to pay me to build some little app for him. And uh, he finally says, okay, you start a company. I have my company. We'll joint venture them together. Uh, and then we'll launch the app into that 50-50. And I was like, 
okay yeah i don't know how to start a company i'm a i'm a bio nerd like i don't know any of this stuff right and this was all still in that like oh nine kind of time frame this was oh nine yeah um so cellar door media started like a week before uh my my marriage did um and so i there's a a, a businessman that my um family are friends with and so i called him up i uh, got a meeting with him and sat down and i was like you have an mba from wharton I'm starting a business and have no idea how to do this. Can I buy you a cup of coffee and you teach me how to start a business and, and um, you know, give me your MBA for a cup of coffee. Um, you know, fast forward 12 years later, he's a, a good friend and mentor and investor in the company um, and has been crucial uh, in my growth as a, as a business owner. So that's how that whole thing started was I went on a gambit and just said, I'm going to build an app for a Hollywood fitness trainer. Um, had no idea how to build an app. And these were, you know, this was 09 in the, in the gold rush days of, of iOS, but there were no frameworks for it. And so I literally bought like the Bible, like, you know, coding for dummies, um, iOS book, bought a Mac and on credit, I was like, okay, let's just do this thing. Um, I built the prototype as it started getting further along. Uh, we got some investors in that were like, okay, yeah, cool. Let's, um, let's back this project and go for it. And, um, yeah, so that was the that was the start of Cellar Door, and um, I've I have since learned now, being a third generation tech nerd, that you you can try to you know go there away from no your genes as much it. as you can, but there's no escaping it. Like right, so so I my dad tried, couldn't do it. You know, he was 37 years at IBM. My grandpa was 36, 38, somewhere in there. So my joke now is, at some point, uh, I'm going to go to IBM and just tell him, look, I need a job, I need an employment number. I'll retire the next day. I don't care. Like I just need that em employment number to put up on the wall next to the the other two. So yeah. And you you got to get your you know any kids you know prepared for you know this is a requirement of coming of age. <laughs> You're entitled. You just retire. learn the code. Just don't even. It's it's kind of sad to say that to a child, but it's just like don't even try to do anything else. Like you're 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 a coder. That's what you do. Just do it. I mean, he's six, and I've already gotten him um, like mini coding apps for his. Uh, for his tablets and stuff like that. So he's already learning. <laughs> yeah, it's funny for me with my kids. Um, yeah, I, I was an art student, you know, basically um, all the way through until like, there was only the inkling that like, you know, I am good at computer stuff. I was using Linux, you know, and like yep. there, there was a constant idea that, you know, that this programming stuff was for the, you know, the math kids who like it was going to be too complicated for me and i remember like seeing the uh, the famous 15 minute rails blog video that dhh did being like yep. oh like i could do this and right. then so like now i've got kids who my oldest daughter is you know really into art and you know i have to try you know to not be like oh this you know like that didn't work out for <laughs> me right you know like right it's good you can you can be a programmer and make good money you know like go do that so but there's so many non-traditional paths into coding like it's it there are folks who do the cs degree and more power to them um and my wife's a recruiter uh has been a recruiter at amazon and microsoft um and uh, a technical recruiter and her job was basically take the top, you know, tier of schools and just go hire CS degrees out of there, yeah. um, left and right. And I was like, I was looking at all the questions they have to answer in the, the interview process. And I'm like, I, there's no way I'd ever, ever be able to get even in the door to any of those jobs, let alone even now, 12 years later. And, you know, I've coded some pretty crazy stuff. There's no way I could code any of that stuff. Right. And so, um, 
you know, there, I think there's a, a, a realm of the tech world that, that requires that high, high knowledge, high skill. Um, and, uh, but web development, I, more and more, I talk to folks, it's a, it's a, it's a green field that a lot of folks can get into. Um, and it's funny that you're an art major. I almost failed art in college. I had to take one art class, um, because, because it was like, a, you know, multidisciplinary, let's make the kids well-rounded. Um, I did everything in my power to piss off that teacher and, um, <laughs> my grade showed for it. Uh, and I just hated it because like a, and a great example was we had to repaint a Picasso or repaint, find a famous painting, draw the grid over it and then repaint it. Oh, yep. So I, I did some Picasso, whatever. It wasn't that hard. And I turned it in and I got like a D on it and I, <laughs> I went up to her and I was like, what? Hey, it's a Picasso. Like, uh, you know, how can you screw up a Picasso that bad? Right. But, um, it shows how much art appreciation I have. But I was like, what did I do wrong? And she's like, oh, you didn't mix your colors right. And my response to her, and I'm, I'm proud of myself as a college student saying this. I was like, if I could mix my my colors like Picasso, I wouldn't be in your art 101 class. Like, oh, you can't expect me to be. <laughs> I know. But I'm like, I'm like, what is this? Right. So like I, I completely, utterly failed that class or like just I think she passed me because she never wanted to see me in art art uh, class again. <laughs> I don't want you back next semester. I don't want you back next semester. So I'll just give you a C and go go for it type of thing. Oh, man. Um, but yeah, so but in in um, web development, I always told folks, I'm like, I'm not an artist. Like I I, I almost failed art, so I'm not an artist. I'm a tech guy, um, and I've had multiple people through my career be like, No, your art is like web. Your art is online. Like it's just a different right. art. And I never saw it like that. Right? Like I always I always saw, okay, you have the creatives and you have the nerds. And in reality, the nerds can be extremely creative, and the creatives can be extremely nerdy. Right? Um, yeah. And so there's there's a ton of blending that goes on. Um, but I, I know people who are poli sci majors and biblical studies and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Like it, there's no, um, you know, standard trajectory for, for web right. development for sure. Yeah. No one path. It definitely makes me wonder, like, you know, it's definitely, you know, this is a medium that's very relevant to sort of what we're doing and it's sort of, you know, I, I guess you could kind of imagine like, you know, the creation of the printing press and sort of, you know, how, you know, for a generation or so after that, how, you know, people who had nothing to do with these industries might, might get involved. I, I was just, just thought of that, but yeah, a bunch of calligraphers with sore hands going, yes, I finally don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. But then those people, it's like, you know, okay. So then their, their work ends up being, you know, designing the, you know, the letter blocks probably, you know, like they help make the letter blocks to then print things. Um, you know, they're the first font designers, right? You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, so, totally. And, and Chris and I were talking before we started recording too about like everyone we know, like I, everyone at Tandem is sort of the same thing. We have some people who did math and we have some people who did do some computer-based stuff, but nobody has taken what would be that traditional get recruited by Amazon because I can do, you know, I can tell you the big O notation of all these methods or something. Right, so like, right. None of us are that. Um, right. but we're all building useful stuff and that, yeah. I think that trumps, you know, your theoretical knowledge, you know, can you build something useful? Yeah. And, and that's where I, as I talk to folks who are just getting into it, there's a level of, um, imposter syndrome or, or self-doubt that comes in. And I'm like, I'm 12 years into this thing. I've built sites that are massive and I wake up every morning being like, 
is this the right job for me? Like, did I really, am I fooling everyone right now? How, how did I, how did I, you know, pull this sham over so many people? But there's, there's always that doubt that that creeps in that you can't do it or, or you shouldn't be doing it. But that's kind of what's fun about the community. And, and as you get in, especially in the open source communities, as you start going through them, um, that wide variety of backgrounds, act, I think, lends to better products, right? Because you have yeah. a more diverse background, you have a more diverse um viewpoint and um, experience base. Everyone has a different background, a different life story, and they're all bringing that to the project. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So we we talked about sort of the founding of Cellador. I hadn't I hadn't heard you tell that story before. So that, that was interesting to hear. Um, and so more about sort of like running the agency. And I guess I guess it sounds like Cellador kind of even from the start wasn't just like pure agency like you started with. It sounds like a product for somebody too. But is that how you'd characterize it? Yeah. Um, so I and I always said if you know, if you want to know how not to build an app, I can tell you very expensive <laughs> lessons on how not to build an app. So um, uh, that that fitness app was our our one and only foray into the uh, into the app world, and I actually got into Drupal because um, I bought a theme on Theme Monster for the to build an, a website for the app. Um, and I was like, "What's this Drupal thing? I have no idea what this is." Um, so I installed, installed the theme, realized it was crap. Um, <laughs> as most are, was, right? <laughs> as most are, right? I thought I was like, this should just magically make itself. Why isn't it? And it's Drupal six, which was even worse at the time yeah. uh, to try and, to try and build on. I finally cobbled it together, got it out. Um, and then as every agency, every person, every product, um, does you get through like your initial high, your initial launch or whatever. And then you kind of hit the doldrums afterwards. And it, it's, you know, what's next? How do you, how do you scale this? How do you grow it? Can you make it into a business? All that. And so we were doing a lot of, um, bids for folks on, and this is 09, 010 when you didn't have frameworks that you could rapidly build an app with now. Um, and so folks are coming to us and just stupid, stupid app ideas. I mean, one of the funny things though, is because of the Hollywood fitness trainer, he kind of plugged us into Hollywood and so we got pitched um, apps for a lot of Hollywood celebrities who were like, oh, I want to make an app. It's the cool thing to do right now. And I was like, you have like one of the one of the uh, I, I kid you not. One of the bids we got or one of the, the requests we got was a Western shootout game for Mike Tyson, like a Mike Tyson Western shootout. And I was like, hey, now thinking about it, I'm like, that probably would have been my multimillion dollar ticket. I could have retired off of two years into the game. Right. But Mistakes. at the time, I was like, I was like, this is a horrible idea. Like, Mike Tyson has nothing to do with with Western shootouts. Like, this is stupid. But uh, who knows? That could have been the next Fortnite. But um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, no. It, so we were just getting a bunch of stuff like that, and I kept saying, "You don't need a mobile app. You need a mobile website, right?" And so that's when we started. That's when we transitioned over into to building websites. And it was right around that time that um, again, because we kind of hit the doldrums and uh, work was slow. I had a ton of time on my hands and started getting involved in the community and got involved with the Omega theme um, before um, it kind of rocketed off in, in Drupal 7. And, um, and so eventually it became, you know, the number one theme for Drupal 7. And I think it's still in the top five um, of yeah. all time now. Um, still comes so, up when you look at look for themes. I was looking with my daughter the other day in Omega and Adaptive. And yeah, Bootstrap, you're just like, right? man, that's a name <laughs> I haven't heard in a while. Um, but yeah, so I, I but again, I wasn't a, I wasn't a technical person. I wasn't you know building the core of it. 
Um, but I understood it, it clicked with me. And so I wrote a bunch of the documentation. I was um, doing a ton of the community support and implementation. Um, and there was a really fun community around it in IRC at the time. And so from that, all of a sudden we started getting calls from massive companies who are adopting this brand new theme that's supposed to be the coolest thing out there, right? And like, hey, can you build this site for us? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. Cause, cool. Because right? your name happened to be out there for the person doing a lot of the docs. Because huh? my name was like one of the five listed on the theme of like, here are the five people who built this theme, right? And so... Um, oh, so you were listed as like a maintainer. Yeah, yeah. Like a, a non-technical maintainer, right? Yeah. So that's that's how we got into it and and kind of made the shift from apps into the web and, you know, started growing it from there and, and making mobile websites and, and um, kind of never looked back. So uh, oddly enough, some of those early, early sites, first sites I ever built, um, they're still uh, clients of ours. And um, we had the opportunity to redo one of them. And uh, I told the team jokingly, but I was like, anyone who makes fun of my code is fired. Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not to laugh at. This is the first website I ever built. So this it was is like the times. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is horrible, horrible code. And I admit it. And you guys can all laugh at me about it, but please but don't laugh, laugh too hard. Laugh quietly. Right. <laughs> right. Just don't laugh too hard. Please don't laugh, laugh too hard. <laughs> laugh at your own desks. <laughs> right. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. And I, I think uh, the story you just told about sort of getting involved in, with that project when you had spare time that mirrors a lot of how i feel like i feel like my career in the drupal space has gone quite fast you know like that it seems like you know from working at a small agency in ithaca that it feels like nobody knew to you know like eventually going on to work at pantheon like that transition only happened because like i got involved you know i i was helping people with things even if i only knew barely uh, you know, one ounce of information more than them, just being out there and being a part of the community in some way is going to bring you opportunity. Um, and some, and you're not going to know it at the time. You're really just putting good into the world by helping people for free. Well, and think of having investors and I'm trying to tell my investors, like, trust me, this open source thing seems anti-business, right? Like I'm going to yeah. help all my competitors learn what I do specifically, you know, special and all that. Um, but coming from the app world, I actually went to WWDC, I want to say 2010. Um, so that was like the first tech conference I went to, um, which famously is the one where Steve Jobs had the failed, um, FaceTime call on stage. Oh boy. Being, being in the audience and seeing Steve Jobs, like look of death of just being <laughs> like that whole section of the room just lost their job. Don't even show up next, uh, tomorrow. Oh boy. Um, that still sticks with me. <laughs> but um, I remember standing in line um, for the the keynote as, as we all had to do at the time and um, talking to some guys next to me and they were building an app that was eerily similar to what I was building, right? And all of a sudden the conversation just stopped. It locked down and we, we hung out and talked a little bit for the rest of the weekend, but there was this whole, because it was not open source, right? iOS at the time, um, yep. you weren't building with these open source tools. And so a lot of it was like, oh, we shouldn't be talking to each other because you're my competitor, right? Protect my trade secrets. Right, right. And so then enter open source world and I go over there and, you know, everyone's telling everyone how to do everything. Um, I still remember in IRC for Omega, we had someone show up and was like, I have three days to build this website. It's like a five page website. And they're like, I'm going to lose my job. I don't know what's going on. I've never used this thing. I've, I was given it with Omega, like what's going on. Yeah. I had 
a day or so to spare. Uh, and so did a couple of the other folks in the community. And we literally were like, okay, give us your login. And we built the whole site for them. Um, wow. And they're like, they're like, thank you so much. Like you saved my job. I don't know what to do. And we're like, just go pay it on to someone else. Right. But that was like, that was kind of like that, that atmosphere that the the theme had at the time was there was a very kind of open sharing going on. Yeah. And as that led to growth for the company, I realized that that's critical for company growth, right? Um, especially in the open source world. But I, I think in general is um, you just don't, you know, don't burn bridges, don't um, box people out and look for any way to collaborate. And if you do, yeah, you'll never know four or five years down the road what that collaboration can lead to. Yeah. And I definitely, I know uh, even working at Tandem that we have, you know, the, the blog posts that like John, for instance, on our team writes about migrations, the webinars that we've done on migrations, like those have increased, you know, leads that come in to tandem. Like there's lots of people who just want to work with us because they know someone on our team knows a lot about that situation. And I, it, it also gives me the guilt that there's tons of like, I can never think of like, if I want to just write a blog post, I can never think like, oh, this will be interesting <laughs> and people will use this. So I, right. I know there's probably tons of untapped, you know, ground there to just like oh, yeah. share information. Whereas instead, what I end up doing is just going in Slack and someone's like, oh, I have this problem. And I'm like, here, I just made a gist for you. Like, that's how I do it. Go, go solve it that way. But it's, it, it always seems to come back to that, that, you know, when you're giving out to other people, it's, you know, free advertisement for you, you know, mm -hmm. and even, even the people who are never going to be your customers, like right. 10 years down the road, you never know, like that person may still remember the help you gave them when you lose your job or something. And yeah, you, know, you, you need the, the next thing. Totally. And our community Drupal specifically, I ended up working in Drupal just because like I wanted a job working in Ruby on rails. And this company was like, we need a Drupal developer. I was like, sold, I'll do that. Right. Whatever it is, <laughs> whatever um, that thing is, but it's the similar community. It's very similar to sort of the rails community now over the past, uh, five, six, seven years, whatever. Um, Laravel has become a, a very similar community in the PHP world too. And it's just, it's so great to show up and know that like, there isn't really anyone who I can't just talk to. And, you know, that's not going to share information with me. Well, and that was the weird thing for me in Drupal was like, uh, so I, I started um, doing Omega and, and uh, getting known for that. And I was like, I don't know what got into me. I was like, I'm going to do a conference talk on this, right? And so <laughs> I, I had, I want to say I had a Drupal.org user for like six months at the time. And um, I put in for our local Pacific Northwest uh, Drupal user, Drupal user group uh, uh, summit. And I was like, okay. And I was, you know, it'll be on Omega. And I got picked and I was like, oh, crap. Like I, <laughs> Now I know, actually have to do this. <laughs> now I have to do this, right? And like, you know, again, like this is, there's a pattern here. I sign up for things and then figure out how I'm going to do them. But no, I'd, I'd done some um, speaking and, and whatnot before. And so I show up and I look at the schedule and I look at the room and they had booked me in like the keynote room for like right before lunch on the first day. And I was like, Everyone's oh, going to be there. Everyone's going to be there, right? <laughs> and so I get up on stage and I have like this massive um, doubt come over me of like, am I really doing this? Am I really doing this right now? And I gave the presentation. I remember afterwards during Q&A, people were asking me questions and I was like, don't know. Don't know anything you just said to me. Like, I have no idea. Like, what's on this on these slides? I know this, right? Um, <laughs> this is the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> right? I've poured it all right here. And if it's not on here, it's not in there. Yeah, it, but that was the thing is like, it took me stepping out like that. 
Um, and I started doing more and more speaking around um, Omega and, and just in general. But those introductions um, and that ability to give out to the community has then led to, you know, more introductions in business uh, growth than I know what to do with. Right. And yeah. so, you know, I, I don't speak because of that, but um, I speak because I know that I listen to other folks who were giving talks and, um, and, and learn from it and then was able to grow myself from it. Yeah. So you want to pay it forward. Totally, totally. And now in my career, I'm like, I want to be able to do what folks did to me. Like one of our, um, one of my kind of big inflection points in the company, there's a couple of them, but one of them came from a competing agency in the Seattle area had a massive, massive company, um, like fortune 50 company come to them and ask him to build them a website. And they said, no, you should go talk to Chris because he's the one who's actually better than us doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there going, you know, this is earlier on. And I'm like, this is cutthroat. Like, you, you should take that job. Are you sure you want to give it to me? And they're like, no, it's yours. Go for it because you do better at it than we would. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it you know, um, it opened up a whole world of opportunities for me. I met folks that are uh, I still work with now. And um, yeah, and so now it's like I actively look for ways that I can do the same thing um, for other groups, other agencies, other folks. Because, yeah, it's that, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships type thing. It's the, you know, cliche that everyone likes to throw around. But in open source, it really is because we're not all competing on the product. We're all, you know, we're all saying that, you know, the better that the project does, like if you have a massive win on a website, that's going to help me sell because then I can say that website was built on what I'm going to build this website on for you. Right. For sure. So that definitely like I was going to ask you about some of the unexpected parts of running the agency. And that certainly sounds like that's, you know, that's something that going into it, you didn't expect all the camaraderie sort of, you know, different agencies in the, in our space. And I, I, I feel that, and that's even working at, like when I worked at Pantheon, people would try, you know, we'd go to events and, and you know, you'd, you'd get in a group of people with someone from Acquia, you know, was was right. in that same group of people, and people would try to get you to like, you know, take Pin shots at each or, other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, neither of us would be interested. It's like whatever, you know, we're all just here. You know, this event is Drupal. You know, DrupalCon. Like we're here because we all are involved in Drupal. Drupal's done great things for our careers, you know, and it's just that's what we're here for. We're not, we're not going to start some petty fight over the fact that we do, you know, do things differently. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing about that is, um, yeah, DrupalCon, you go to some of the, um, social events and you're like, you guys all should be at each other's throats, like competing, figuring out how to, you know, one up each other. And mm-hmm. instead you guys are all having beers, hanging out and discussing strategy and what you're doing and how you're doing it. And it was, and again, coming from, um, iOS at the beginning, that was my first, kind of business around tech, um, it was foreign to me. Like this was not how I was told things should be done. And then I have a a group of mentors, um, incredibly smart business guys saying, you know, don't teach your, your, your competitors how to do what you do, save it for yourself and, and, um, and, and grow your business that way. Um, and in some industries it is cutthroat enough that you have to do that. Yeah. Open source isn't one of those, right? It's not one of those that you, you do that with. And so, um, you actually, you, you look around the community and the more successful ones are the ones that share the most and, um, the ones that try to siphon off or, or, um, just take without giving, they don't last because it, it just, you know, the community doesn't, doesn't support that. Yeah. No one's going to give them help when they need it. Right. 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 So you, you've mentioned a couple of times that you guys have investors sort of in yeah. the cellar door. And I think yeah. that's, uh, it may be my limited 
knowledge of different agencies, you know, in our space, but that's not something I hear about a lot. So what's, what's that like? No, a lot of the times it's, it's bootstrapped, right? It's, it's uh, bootstrapped one or two people start it and, and you go from there. Um, and so, but again, this lends back to the, uh, the iOS app days when our whole, our whole idea was that we were going to build the company and it was going to be a holding company for equity stakes in a bunch of the apps that we built. Right. And so yeah. there was, there was an investment opportunity there. It was, um, you know, a good, t- a good thesis and a good, uh, time for it, um, never happened. But then, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, what are some of the more difficult parts of agency uh, life and everything. And so you, you go through the peak of launch and you go through the doldrums and you start to slowly grow back out of it. And going through the doldrums on your own is tough. Going through the doldrums with investors is harder because I'm sitting there and these are these are friends and family. They're not, you know, VCs. We haven't taken any VC money or anything. These are all um, folks that have networked around um, through through folks that we know. And I'm sitting there going, you gave me money and I'm supposed to make that worth more. And, you know, there were, there were calls, I'll be honest, there were calls, um, early on in the company with, with some of the investors, they're like, should we just write this off? And you go, you go do the next thing. And I was like, no, I'm not going to let you just write off money. And I'm, I'm stubborn like that, but I'm like, I'm not going to just give up on this. Right. Yeah. In one sense, having investors obviously complicates things just from a, a, a business perspective that most agencies don't have to go through. But it also is what gave me the drive during some of the low points to keep going. Cause it's like, I'm not just building for myself. I've got other people. And now that we've grown it to the, the point where we've got uh, employees, you've got families, you've got um, it's more than just dollars and cents of businesses. There's, there's people involved. Right. And yeah. so that is what, that's what drives me in the business is making sure that I'm giving um, the employees that we have the best opportunity at life that for them and their families. And at the same time, can I, you know, make good on the promise that I made 12 years ago to some investors that um, this is going to be worth your your while, right? Like you you can invest in me and we can go for this. So yeah, there was a lot of ups and downs. And, and <laughs> the hardest part was during some of those down points, my wife is recruiting at Amazon and she's like, do you, do you know how much money you could make if you just stopped and came to work at Amazon? <laughs> can always come this way. <laughs> right, right. She's like, you could, you could, I mean, she's been incredibly supportive the entire time. And I've always said if the moment that she says she's done with um, entrepreneurship and agency life, like I'll be done. Like there's, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do this without, without that support, but right. Cause like you said, the people are, are what's important in the end. Totally, totally. And so, um, but, but there was times when I was like, man, I could be pulling, you know, good six figure job and have a nine to five and not have to work night and weekends and all this grind that I'm doing with the agency. Um, but now I look back on it and I'm like, I would be a horrible employee for anybody else. And I don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I could have ever done that. Um, cause this is really what, um, what my personality has, uh, has lent to. So there's always a feast and famine and there's always, and it's, it's crazy when you look at actually our, our, um, reports and our revenues and stuff, it's, it's very cyclical. Um, yeah. even now it's very cyclical. The thing is, is that do those cycles bounce off the bottom, right? Is it like work, no work, work, no work, work, no work. Or now it's just ton of work, you know, normal work, ton of work, normal work, right? And you just keep raising that baseline that you have the feast and famine through. So has there been like a turning point, you think, for Cellar Door, you know, as to what you feel? Do you feel like you're 
you mentioned sort of, you know, that the feast and famine cycle, the, the it's compressed, you know, to the point where it's like, you're, you're not hitting rock bottom at every low in the cycle. So do you feel like you guys are like, you're kind of in a different, you know, setup now than you were back then? Oh, hundred percent. Um, but the, the, the thing that started to change is when I, and I built the company by myself, I was, you know, solopreneur or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more that I pulled myself out of the business, the more the business grew. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of folks, solopreneurs and agencies, small agencies, two or three people likely start around one person having some type of pull. Right. Yep. So people wanted to come work with me because I had worked with Omega. And so, um, I only have cult of personality. Totally. And and so like we'd have clients come in being like, I want Chris. And it's like, well, I don't have enough time to give everyone enough time to make it worthwhile. Um, and so I started hiring in and we we haven't grown fast. We're not a 40 person agency and that's purposeful. Like we I'm I'm I want to grow at a pace that I'm comfortable with the quality of work that we're putting out there, but then also I would much rather go out and hire the specific person that's like, you are really good at this. So we're going to go find a bunch of work for that and, and have you do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but as I kept hiring in um, and started pulling myself out of being in the business, I could start focusing on growing the business. And I think that was the shift for me, both mentally and just, you know, in practice was the more I started to hire or delegate that off, Every time I delegate off a new role um, to a new team member, then all of a sudden I find myself being able to go find new jobs, talk to new people, network out. And that's when the company has made its stride, strides in growth. Um, and that baseline has risen every single time. It's like you can almost watch it. Like every time I hire an employee, the the baseline just starts to rise up, right? It's it's one of those things where you don't want to hire too fast because then you just, you know, <laughs> you have right. a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of overhead and nothing to do. But um, yeah, you know, hiring a project manager was probably one of the first big things because I was managing all the projects and I'm horrible at managing time <laughs> in that because I'm a dev, right? Like I'm completely scatterbrained all over the place and hiring somebody in that's like focusing the whole team was a big expense because it was not, you know, something we were billing for at the time we do now. Um, but it was not something we were billing for at the time, but it allowed the company to stay so focused that we could go get more done than we ever had before. Yeah, and I definitely like uh, we at Tandem. We've we've gone through different cycles of having a dedicated project manager. Now I end up doing a good portion of project management for our work while I'm also developing. And like you said, that's a very difficult. It's hard to wear both those hats because they almost kind of they force you to kind of fight with yourself to a certain extent, where you're trying to. <laughs> I got to go tell myself to do more work, as, as, right? You know, <laughs> or talk to myself about what items we need to cut or things like that. It's kind of a kind of a weird one, but that's that's cool. And so, at what point, like during those kind of cycles, did Locker come into the equation? Is that like a you know, was it that that you were freed up enough to 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 pursue something different, or how did how did you get started on that? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> we we never had um, the free time to work on Locker um, like we wanted, and so um, the story behind Locker is uh, we started working with a company uh, around encryption. Uh, their their um, product is around encryption, and as a agency, I've found that it's better for me. I always tell folks when we first start out, said, I'm going to be a developer, an architect, 
uh, a consultant and a therapist at some point during this entire relationship. Like it's just how our, our arc will go. Right. And so I try to learn as much about their business as I can, because I've found that the more successful they are, the more successful we are. Right. Like if we can make them successful, the better off everyone is. Right. And so, um, so I was learning about this, uh, company and what they did and the encryption and all that. And I go, man, I've been trying to do that in Drupal for years, going back to the first website I ever built was for a college. And I remember getting a phone call being like, Hey, our form broke. Can you help us fix it? And it was a, a form for a, uh, like homecoming tickets, but it was credit card date, CVV, all that in web form. And then they were just printing out the Excel file and then entering it into their, their credit card terminal. And I was like, Oh no, like you shouldn't be doing this. This is, this is entirely wrong. Right. And then over the years, I kept getting access to sites that had more and more private data in the background. I was like, this is wrong. Like there, there, there has to be better ways. And so we were trying to incorporate tech, um, encryption into everything and it just wasn't working. Hmm. Well, going through it with them, I finally said, hey, I think there's an opportunity here for us to work together in this. Um, and so we partnered up and rebuilt um, Drupal's entire encryption library. Um, through that process, we extracted out the key management of it into... Uh, its own module called key um, that isn't now just for encryption keys. It's for API tokens. And, you know, basically it's grand central station of, of authentication um, information or, or, or secret information for, for Drupal. And so following along the node squirrel path, I was like, okay, if we're going to build a product, I, you know, it's, it, you guys know this very well, like building a product in open source is very difficult because you have to walk this line of, you know, are they one of us or are they selling to us? And the moment that you're a product, like coming into open source and being like, buy my product, um, we have a very keen sense of of whether you're one of us or not, right? Um, and then there's also a heavy set of doubt behind products in general, right? Services are where everyone makes their money, but products has always kind of been this this stickier point, especially in the Drupal community. Yeah, Drupal specifically, for sure. Drupal specifically, for sure. And as I got more involved in WordPress, I was like, man, this is a healthy, thriving product ecosystem over here. I'm like, how can I pull this into Drupal? Um, but yeah, the Drupal mindset is very much a, I can build it myself. I don't need to pay for it. I can do this, right? And um, even if I end up spending 100 hours to do it, where I'm going to pay this guy $10, and instead of spending 100 of my hours on it, I can do it, right? So um so we followed the node scroll pathway where it was like, we want to make sure that our first and foremost uh, focus is putting functionality into the community and then provide a SaaS that provides, you know, an option to that functionality. And so like node scroll did for uh, backup and migrate, we built the key module very much in the same path where it was like, let's make this thing completely functional. And then we tell folks, if you want a better storage for it, that's what Locker's for. So Locker in general... Uh, for those that don't know, it's it's uh, secrets management for Drupal, WordPress, and now pretty much anything. And so uh, the idea being that setting up secrets management systems and uh, HSMs and all these you know pieces to to run either encryption or or secrets properly is a difficult thing to do. And so our goal was to make that just dead simple. No one should have to have a computer science degree in order to to set up secrets management on their site. And so um, so working with this other company. We started building out all these different features and functionality. And then finally, one day I went to him and said, this needs to be a SaaS. I said, if you're, if, you're, if you're not wanting to build that SaaS, which it wasn't in their business model, I said, can I license your technology and build a SaaS around it? Because they, they had the HSM, the storage portion of it. Um, they just didn't have the SaaS model around it. 
yeah, so Locker was that. Um, it was actually following a pitch um, for storage that um, the folks that we were pitching to said, well, if, if you managed and hosted this, that would be a lot easier than us trying to manage it and host it ourselves. And we walked out of that meeting, me and the, the rep from the, the company, I said, okay, Rochambeau, like whose company is this? Um, there has to be a SaaS here. Do you want to start it or do you want me to? Um, again, there's a pattern here. Like I, I find myself stumbling into products and business that I, I you know, I, I, I at the time shouldn't be in. But and so that's kind of what the the premise of Locker was, is we had to scratch our own itch. And I think some of the best, right? And we look at our agency uh, and this, we call it the services side of the business, but we look at the services as our incubator, right? A lot of product companies would die um, to try and find a way to tap into what's, what's relevant, what's, you know, what are folks dealing with right now? What are the hardships that they're doing? And we looked at it and going back to the, the cycles of the company and stuff, there were times where we said, okay, <clears throat> so Locker is actually not a separate company from the, the services kind of diving into the business side of it. Um, a lot of folks create a separate business entity to run them separately. We said, nope, this is a product of the main company. We're going to keep it there. And there were multiple times that we wanted to split those apart and say, okay, let's split the product off and go run it and, you know, VC and all that type of stuff. But we kept coming back to the services are going to be so critical to the product's growth. And if we split the services off from the, the product, we're going to have to go build the whole services thing again. Someone's, you know, there is, a, there's always a services factor to product. And so not only um, for just operational, but the ideation space is we, we got to locker out of, what we were dealing with over here in the services. Yes. Same type of thing. We actually have a second product now that we're working on uh, in the privacy space that's somewhat related to Locker, but it came out of this. We're doing a bunch of work over here and we've got a lot of really, really brilliant people working in the services side. And anytime someone's like, hey, what do you think about trying to create this? Or should I create a product around this? My answer is like, yeah, go for it. Try it. Let's let's test it out internally. If nothing else, it's a tool that we can use for that site to run. Um, yeah. And then if if we need to, we can extract that out and, and create the product out of it. And so now that was the genesis of Locker. And that's the genesis of kind of all the products going forward that we're going to do. Yeah. And that's definitely, you mentioned how services staying a part of sort of what you do, even after you've, you know, you you get the products going. And that's something I've always thought about, like, you know, when it comes to Lando, right, the reason that we know what we're doing with Lando is because we still build websites every day. We're still, we're still doing this work. And therefore, like, you never get separated and divorced from sort of what it is that that product needs to do. You're like, you always are going to, oh, yes, I understand that that's needed because I also keep running into that. It's funny because the I think the times that we tried to cleave the two apart from each other mm -hmm. were the times that um, both started struggling the most because mm. it was it was the like shared identity of the two of them. Um, that allowed our, our company to kind of grow, right? And, and internally, there was, there, at times there was this, oh, you're locker, oh, you're cellar door. Yeah. We're different, right? And, and so then once that culturally started to occur, that's when I was like, okay, we can't have that anymore. Like, you know, you're not just one or the other. You are, you are both. And, and um, it's a shared identity and a, sh a shared trajectory um, with both of them. And so um, I think Locker, as you guys um, have, have probably seen with Lando and as every startup and SaaS and product has ever seen, you go through your your feast and famine, you go through your cycles, just like any business, right? You go through your peak of launch and your doldrums and your growth. Yep. And so it's just how can you span that that doldrums, right? And I think for us, 
Um, I've been a early, early Lando adopter. Um, and I have, <laughs> I've literally been on projects where I'm like, if I can't use Lando, I'm just, I'm done. Like our, <laughs> our team will sign off. Like you guys can have it. That's, that's good and dandy, but, uh, or we've like shimmed Lando in the back end without telling anyone because it makes us more productive. Um, yeah. So being a longtime Lando user, I, I know kind of the trajectory that you guys have gone through and we're very much the same way. I think both of our products hit the market before the broad need was there yeah. because we saw the need ourselves, right? And then the market kind of grew into it. And so now for us with Locker, I had to, I had to go through um, so many conversations with folks to be like, why would I ever need secrets management, right? Yep. And my, my famous one is like, well, you have MailChimp installed and that MailChimp key is in your database. If I have that MailChimp key, I can send an email with whatever content I want on in it to your list. Would you like me to do that? And their answer is no. That's why you don't keep it in your database, right? That sale or that strategy um, early on didn't click because it's just like, well, that's what everyone else is doing. Like, why would I pay extra or do extra to do that? Now, with all the data breaches and privacy laws and everything starting to stack up on each other, folks are being much more security aware earlier on in the process. Um, and that's led to, to growth with Locker. Same type of thing with Lando. Early on, trying to run, you know, I, I go all the way back to the Calibox days of yeah. <laughs> um, the early, early days, right? And the idea of a local dev site was, well, we're all using MAMP. Why would we ever switch <laughs> over to using you know, containers and other things like this is this is crazy. That sounds complicated. Right. This is overly complicated. It sounds like another vagrant box or something like that. Why would I ever go through that? And the moment that I showed somebody like Lando init, Lando start, it was just like, like minds are blown because that would take days. I, I don't know how many code sprints I've gone to where um, I'm like, all right, everyone's on Lando or we're not doing this code sprint because I'm going to spend the entire day running around screwing with people's MAMP. Um, in WAMP setups, trying to get everyone, you know, synced up and all that. But again, containerization, all of that didn't click uh, or didn't become broad until just recently, right? In the last few years, having that basis early on lends to trust and, you know, dev environments, dev workflows. Um, there's a lot of trust that has to be built into that, especially with, with customers of you're going to have your employees or your developers adopt a practice um, that if done wrong is going to cost you a lot of money in time, right? Yeah. Same type of thing with Locker. Like you want me to store all of my most secret things that I'm not supposed to share with anyone in your service. Like tell yeah, me how that works, with right? You? Right. <laughs> and just for, just for the note, like we, we, um, we do a wrapping encryption before anything leaves the website. So we actually just store a bunch of encrypted blobs that, that we have no idea what they are. Yeah, But it's that trust that has to be there, right? And so being around long enough, surviving long enough to be able to show that value and be able to say, hey, we saw this before it was big. Um, I think that's huge, right? And so yeah. I look back and Locker wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for the services, right? Um, because those doldrums for any product or SaaS, eventually you get to the point of, can I sell this thing or did I just pick the wrong business? Right. Yeah. Or do I have to sell it off to somebody because I can't afford to keep this running myself and then I'll go find the next thing to hop onto. Our services company has been able to, to weather those storms for locker um, and go through a lot of that, um, that early stage. And so we actually look at it as like we invested in ourselves, right? We didn't go out and get VC investment, but we, we took revenue that we had from services, invested it into locker and grew that. 
um, and, and kind of, you know, bet on ourselves and invested in ourselves. That's, that's a, that's very good, uh, good, good kind of, uh, tale, you know, for, for others to think about, you know, cause I, I think we all see sort of base camp, right. Is the, the canonical bootstrap story and they, you know, their, their story is a little different than both how Lando functions and how, uh, Locker and Celadora functioning that they sort of like, they hit the point where they're like, we're getting so much revenue for base camp, right. That like, it's, it's that and writing books is what we do from, <laughs> from here on out until Hey launched. Right. You know, that I was, was going to say now email and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's always interesting. Like you get in your mind thinking that that has to be how you do it. And if you didn't, that like, that there's some sort of failure going on here that, that like, if you can't shake doing the services that like, there's something, some, some sort of issue, right. Continuing to honor the, that part of the business and what it gives you to fuel what you're continuing to do, I think is that's unique. Not a lot of people I think have that as a, this is a good, good setup. Like, you know, there, that this should always be kind of, you mentioned, I think before we, we started recording about, um, you know, sort of the incubator kind of approach and, and tandem and Lando is a very similar kind of thing. So, you know, you're growing locker, you know, you, you said you're, you're starting on this, this next business in the privacy space and, you know, there's no plans to be like, all right, once these hit it, we're just gonna, you know, no more building people's Drupal sites. That's it. Like we're, we're just gonna, we're just gonna cash out, drive our Lambos around and, <laughs> Yeah. And that's the funny thing is like everyone thinks that product life is just, you know, a base camp doesn't happen overnight. Like bootstrapping doesn't happen overnight. There are some runaway successes that that folks see, but there's a there's a lot that happens beforehand. And you look at some of these massive companies, they have five, six, seven year tails on them yeah. um, that, again, a lot of business is just being there. Right. Being being there and being available, being in the right spot. And so. Um, yeah, we have kind of this hybrid approach because we have investors and we took on some, uh, some more investment money as we, um, as we started building locker out. Um, but again, friends and family rounds, things like that, like we've never done institutional funding. Um, and so we can, um, we can, you know, claim the bootstrap route. Um, uh, but then again, I've, I've been in those pitch meetings. I know how to do those. And I know the the sting of being like, no, I don't think your product's going to make it or it's not big enough for us or whatever, you know, that on the shark tank. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Seriously though. Like we, my wife and I used to love watching shark tank. And at some point I'm like, this is just traumatizing. Cause I'm, I put myself in those entrepreneur shoes every time. And I'm like, I've been in that pitch. I know how that's going either going really well or going off the rails. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, I just can't watch it. Cause I empathize too much with them. And I'm like, I no, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> too um, real this is this is too, too reality tv right <laughs> right i want my reality tv to be less real and just just more <laughs> mind-numbing but um yeah so it's just one of those things where um uh running the products part of the agency we do look at it as an incubator we do look at it as um you put enough smart people in a room uh give them give them enough opportunity and something's going to come of it right yeah. um we've got two or three other things that we're working on now um, with other, other clients and customers, it's like, could this be right? Everyone always has that inkling in the back of their head now, like, could this be another product? Could this be another thing? Um, and so we'll see, but it's, it's fun to be able to have that opportunity and not just be all product all the time. Like we just have to drive Make and grind. It break it. Exactly. Um, and being, being able to kind of sit back in the incubator as well and, and play around with some stuff. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, I've, I've heard, 
uh, I can't remember how to say the guy's last name, but this guy, Daniel, I've seen on, on Twitter a few times mentioning building a portfolio of sort of smaller bets. You know, it's kind of, it's not like we're going to turn everything to this and that's it. You know, it's okay if these, you know, these products and the services are just parts of what make, you know, they're, they're part of the constellation of what makes this company profitable long-term. And if any one of them is experiencing difficulties, you know, we have other things that we can either, you know, slightly shift focus to, or, you know, that are just going to become a bigger part of the mix. And that's, you know, that's what builds strength is that strength through diversity. Totally. Well, and the pandemic is a perfect example of that, right? Um, pandemic hits and we as a company say, okay, we've got to focus on services and make sure that we're, we're keeping that underlying incubator there, right? Um, so did we stop on Locker during that time? No, we went kind of into an R&D mode. Um, there wasn't opportunities to go out to conferences and, and market and do our traditional thing. And so we said, okay, let's go back and, and you know finish off this product that we had had. And that's where our privacy product is, um, was kind of born out of that was our, okay, let's, let's take this time, let's focus on that. And let's just make sure the company survives this entire pandemic thing. And so having those multiple bets, those little you know pieces here and there, um, is what gets you through some of these massive swings that aren't are in your control, right? They're completely out of your control. Your company can weather those better if you have uh, a multifaceted business. So I, I think that that's the majority of the questions I had for you, Chris. So the, the last one that I, that I thought was uh, was kind of interesting when I was looking at LinkedIn is you're you're a member of the Data Privacy Committee for DHS, the U.S. government. Is that, what's that like? Just as a little bonus piece of info. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's fun. Um, so I, I have to caveat everything I say is like, I don't speak on behalf of the department. I don't, uh, I am my own person. And um, because the, the relationship there is, there are these committees that every every uh, branch of the, the government has them. And they're, they're um, advisory committees that they go out and say, okay, we're going to take professionals from the public sector or private sector and bring them into the public sector to help us do what we do better, right? Those who have been gov around government along know that it's very easy to just kind of get in the bubble um, and not get out and to see what private's doing, partly because the private sector moves so fast, right? Um, and so the public sector is constantly having to keep up with it. And so um, this data privacy committee uh, it's the Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, or the DIPIAC, as a lot of folks call it. Um, they are uh, made up of um, professionals with uh, around the, the privacy community. Um, and we've been able to, uh, we kind of went through a, a doldrum for a year or two um, as, uh, as, as you know, things were getting shaken up at the, at the department. But the idea is, as outside idea and voices, the department comes to us and presents us with, hey, we're doing this or we're wanting to do this. Um, what should we look at, look out for? And so basically we get to look at um, what's going on in the department and then advise, here are the privacy concerns around those and how to mitigate those privacy concerns. A famous one that I kind of got in when I, when I joined was right at the tail of it was um, facial recognition for uh, border patrol and uh, airports, which you know, none of us have been to an airport in a year now. But as you go through um, border patrol more and more over the next uh, decade, even now they're they're already in place in, in several airports. You're going to see facial recognition being used for boarding, um, and so they had to they had to go through and say, 
you know, is this a valid form of identification? But you're going to see it being used all the way from the boarding process, all the way through um, customs and coming back. Well, obviously, you're scanning a bunch of people's faces. You're running them through uh, algorithms to match with either known um, uh, terrorist watch lists and things like that. But there's a t- obviously so there's a ton of privacy concerns around that. Oh, right? Yeah, like, what do we sure. do with the data? Where is it stored? Who has access to it? Um, how can it be used? Where can it not be used? All that type of stuff. And so we put together a report or they did. I got to see the final pieces of it um, and, and help with a little bit of it. But it's this advisory report that then gets given to the chief privacy officer of, of DHS, who then advises uh, the secretary of DHS. And it, a lot of the times it gets made into some sort of codified um, rule set or, or policy. For me, what's been fun about that whole process, um, A, is uh, the government to me has always just kind of been this thing where I would love to get involved, but I don't know how. Right. Yeah. And it's easy for a lot of folks to kind of shake their fist at, at the government and be like, you're not doing this right or you're not doing that right. Yeah. Um, I'm going back to my couch. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to go back to my couch. I'm going to go back to Twitter and just start yelling some more. Um, but the hard part is, and especially where my passion is, is privacy in uh, the open source community. So I got to work with uh, WordPress and uh, some of the folks behind the WordPress um, uh, privacy uh, initiative that they did to, to put privacy into core. I'm kind of leading up the charge of that in Drupal. And that's actually what I, I broached um, DHS with. I was like, most of your, your websites are built on Drupal. Yeah. I'm the one who's leading the charge for privacy within Drupal. I should probably help you figure out how to do privacy um, with your technology um, in, this, uh, in this journey. And so it's been a little longer for us in Drupal. I think we're getting some headway there and we, we actually will get it as a, uh, a true core initiative here um, uh, very, very soon. Cool. But um, the idea being, uh, how can we as an open source community go from being reactive to proactive in policy, right? Yeah. We're really easy and we do a really good job of, you know, blacking out our websites or, you know, protesting in some other way when there's privacy concerns. But then we just go back to our day jobs. And we don't do anything yeah. about it. And the number of people that are actually in involved in Congress, involved in these privacy concerns um, is very, very little. And so I wanted to, I said, okay, I'm the type of person, if I don't see somebody doing it, I feel like somebody should be, I'll step up and do it. Um, that's why I'm the president of our HOA is because <laughs> nobody wanted to do it. I was like, fine, I'll do it. It doesn't matter. Fits, fits with the pattern you were talking about earlier. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there, again, life has patterns, but um, but it's this thing where I, I kind of found this voice and this, not activism, but this idea of I need to get active in policy, especially around privacy, as, as there's no real federal privacy policy yet. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of talk around it. Um, I want to be on the front lines of that and being able to say, well, talking on behalf of, you know, these groups that collectively form, you know, the majority of websites that you've ever touched, here's what we're doing in privacy. And here's how that's going to impact it, impact the policy and impact what's going on. What's really cool for me is being part of this process is most of the committee is are all lawyers. Um, And it's like one, I actually got called out in my first meeting, chief privacy officer at the time, um, and he's like, Chris, we're really glad that you uh, you've joined us as a technologist. He's like, it's really good to have a technologist point of view on here. And at that time, up to then, I felt like the kid who put on a suit, uh, who showed up at the wrong meeting, like 
am I in, am I in the right room? Like, am I supposed to be here? Is everyone's going around it's talking like, about legal precedents? <laughs> oh my gosh! But it was like lawyer, 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 and they're all incredibly accomplished. And I'm sitting here going, again, the doubt hops in and is like, yep. I'm a molecular biologist who started a dev company 12 years ago. Like, am I really supposed to be sitting at this table? But then the more that I got involved in it, the more I realized, no, my opinion actually does impact this because. It, it has to be there, right? Yeah. And one of my favorite parts of, of all of our public meetings is they open it for um, comments at the end for the public, right? And so anyone can can stand up and, and talk. And there are privacy activists and privacy uh, advocacy groups that that um, stand up and bring up some very valid and and um, obvious concerns around how the department is using data and, and what the privacy is there. I personally love that portion of the meetings because I get to hear yeah, that's a great idea or that's a great concern. And then I'm in a position where I can turn around and be like, let's let's look into that more. Let's focus on that more. Not that they don't have a purpose. Advo- advocates and advocacy has a purpose 100%. It's to advocate to people like me who are on the other side of the table to be able to turn around and, and do stuff, right? And so, uh, yeah, it's just been a, a fascinating experience. Uh, my first kind of foray into public policy and, and you know, that, that whole um, process. But um, yeah, and I'm I, again, as things have gone along, I somehow have been selected to run the uh, Emerging Technologies Subcommittee. Um, so my job now is to, you know, help explore what are the emerging technologies within DHS and what are the privacy implications of them. And it's like, as every tech nerd's dream, it's like, this is actually really fun. Like I get to get <laughs> under the hood and see what's going on and um, all the all the crazy technologies that that they're using, and uh, what can we do about them? I haven't gotten into the, see any of the crazy technology yet, but how can how can I be involved in that process? And if and if I can make it so that you know the department handles data in a different way, or prevents a breach, or in the event of a breach, handles it in a different way, then you know I'll, I'll consider my time there as a, as a success. Well, it's very cool. Yeah, I, I often feel like I want to like the work that I do to be doing you know to be important you know and sometimes you're like i'm just building a website for you know fill in the blank you know thing that doesn't seem you know it's like oh whatever you know it's 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 great to to see you've got you know some sort of outlet that it feels like it might have a bigger impact on like the world long term yeah and if we want to go complete you know circle on this all the way back to the beginning of the conversation none of us are privacy professionals i don't have a law degree you're an artist i'm a molecular biologist we're building websites that traffic in data for millions and millions of people, um, which is crazy to think of. And, you know, anytime I launch a website and I look at the stats, it's like, oh, you had three million views, visitors last week. It's like three million people saw my pixel somewhere on their screen. Like, that's just <laughs> crazy, right? Yeah, I forget about it sometimes. I for, I'm like, oh, yeah, these websites <laughs> right? are actually Like, it's the matrix, used. right? Like, you, <laughs> they, you see the code, you know, um, type of thing. But, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where as a – and this is kind of – the arc of my career has has kind of come to this is that as a non-traditional technologist, even in traditional technology paths, people don't teach privacy. It's security for a lar- large yeah. portion of it is just not taught. And so a lot of the times I go around talking at camps and, and conventions and stuff, and it's all around like basic, basic site security and basic data privacy rules and, and whatnot. The most fun I have is when I get to pop into ethics and I get to say, just because we can build all this stuff, should we? Just because we are building this stuff, can we, right? Yes. And again, going back to our background of none of us are, are privacy people by nature. So we're going to build these crazy products that have all these privacy concerns about it, launch them out into the world, and then yeah. all of a sudden go, Oops, Very big. Yeah. 
it's the last five years, right? <laughs> totally, right? And so for me to be able to sit on the, 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 the government side of that, but then also within the projects, help direct some of the process where that, you know, that's where I feel like I can make a difference. And I, I think everyone, everyone that is in open source long enough finds that place, right? Are you in a theme? Are you yeah. helping to um, build a community? Are you running a conference? Are you running a camp? Um, no matter what it is, and I, this is what I like about the Drupal community opening up c- contribution to non-code activities, right? It's that you know everyone finds their 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 niche and everyone finds their place, and and this happens to be mine. So yeah, it's it's just crazy to to look at the arc, <laughs> you know, going from the the molecular biologist to working with DHS and um, and you know building crazy sites and products and all that type of stuff. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like I this is all because. Um, I just decided to be out there, be vulnerable, be um, with the community and and go where the community led me. And yeah, it's been a really fun ride. Yeah, that can be, you know, being being vulnerable definitely strikes me as, you know, you hear Brene Brown talk about it all the time, but it's always like, yeah, someday. <laughs> someday I'll open myself up to people to scrutiny. But yeah, I've, I've often said that uh, one of the... One of the smartest things that I that I do in my career is to be wrong loudly in public as often as possible, so people can can come and correct me. <laughs> yeah, my my favorite thing when I give a conference talk, and there's always the person who wants to stand up and try to prove you wrong or or ask a question that stumps you. My favorite thing is to go, I don't know, like I I really don't know. Like I will I will yeah. love to get your information and talk to you about it later. You know, not having to stand on the stage and say that you know everything and that everything comes to you, right? Um, it's not like this out. This hasn't come easy. There's been a ton of struggle and, and a you know, it hasn't been all, you know, Bitcoin and Lamborghinis, but <laughs> still waiting for my first one. Again, folks are like, if you could go back and do it differently, what would you do? It's like, I would set up my Raspberry Pi to start mining Bitcoin and just leave it in the corner for years on end. <laughs> but yeah, it's just one of those things where uh, folks look at tech and, and kind of see the, the it's easy to see the facade. Um, and um, I feel like now, I don't know, this is my age speaking or whatever, but I feel like I've gone through enough in the tech community where my goal now is to walk alongside the folks that are just starting or coming into it being like, here's what I wish I would have known 10 years ago in Drupal or in, in open source. But if you're doing this, this, and this, you're totally normal, right? Like everyone goes through their first couple of years in the tech community being like, I, did I pick the right career? Am I, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place? Um, are they going to find me out for who I am and all that stuff? Um, and, um, the answer is yes. Like you are in the right place. You are in the right, you know, play career and, and they'll find you out. And but that's a good thing, out. right? Like that's a great thing. Um, right, right. You'll go through it. Um, but I, yeah, there are things that I don't do going back to when I was a, uh, a scientist, the, the pharmaceutical company we worked for was doing some really crazy kind of groundbreaking stuff. And there was this the the prototypical mad scientist right with the long ponytail gray hair and just kind of doing all sorts of crazy experiments and stuff and he's the one who came up with the technology incredibly wise man and he told me he's like i hire people that are smarter than me he's like i don't want to hire people that are dumber than me just so i can feel better he's like that's why we hired you to do this he's like you're better than all of us at this so you go do that and it was that empowerment at 25 that gave me that confidence to be able to do that and ever since then, that's been my my goal. It's just been hire the smartest person I can, right? Be that person. I don't need to be the best at it. One of our, uh, the guy who built Locker, like the majority of Locker, 
Um, I hired him off of a company that I worked with. He came straight out of high school, never went to college. And his first project with me was taking a Drupal Commerce site and connecting it to an airline reservation mainframe. No small task. No and small at 19, task. he did it, right? And this kid's a, um, not a kid anymore, but like at the time, the kid was brilliant, right? Um, and just given that opportunity and given that chance. Um, and again, find the people that are smarter than you, hire them. And that's that's the whole point of, of, of the, the agency is, you know, fi- go find people that are better than you, smarter than you and go hire them. And over time, now we have customers and clients coming to me being like, Hey, can I have so-and-so's time or can I have so-and-so's time? And it's not me anymore. Um, and at times it, you know, I take that personally, but then it, it's a, a good, good feeling. feeling. It's like, okay, it's like, it's not, you know, I don't, I don't feel like everyone's coming and pointing to me anymore. It's like, I've, I've found the right person if, if I'm no longer the one that's being asked for all the time. So, well, uh, it looks like, uh, we're, we're, we're just about out of time, Chris, cause, uh, we, I think we've both got to run on to other things, but it was great to talk to you. I think that's a good, great point to end it on, but. Thanks again for coming on, for uh, for getting this thing started with us. I uh, really appreciate your time. No, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to DevQuest. If you liked the episode, do us a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, as it will help folks find us. You can find the show, including show notes and links to our work, at devquest.lando.dev. Consider sponsoring Lando on Patreon at patreon.com slash devwithlando so we can continue to build the best open source developer tool belt in the galaxy and bring you more podcast episodes like this one. If you have a question or a story you'd love to tell, you can contact us at podcast at lando.dev. Until next time, dev well, friends. <laughs>